Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. A very happy new year to you, by the way. Now, I'm delighted that my guest this week has been called the most quoted sociologist in the UK. Frank Ferretti is Emeritus Professor at the University of Kent in Sociology. He's written numerous books, the themes of which have ranged from the risk aversion culture in our society today through to the cult of fear. Indeed, his most recent book is this, How Fear Works, The Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. Uh, I'm delighted he's with me now. Hello there, Frank. Hi there. Um, Happy New Year to you too. Happy New Year. And um, can I start by asking something which, uh, when I was reading through the book, came out, which was that you say that now fear is sort of something in our society which exists almost entirely alone. It's got, as you put it, a commanding moral position. Can you explain that? Yeah, I think what's happened in the last 20 years is that as, as, as the basic kind of moral values and beliefs have lost their significance to people's lives, as ideologies uh, unraveled, so increasingly in public life, people use fear as a way of making statements, as a way of uh, legitimating their cause. So people tell us that unless we eat this particular vitamin, we're all going to be ill, we have to go vegan, because eating meat is going to uh, destroy the planet, but also will destroy our way of life. And virtually every cause, whether it's political or economic, is justified in terms of scaremongering. And that's something that uh, transcends the ideological divide, because both the left and the right, very often, uh, instead of putting forward a message of hope, very often put forward a message of fear. And uh, and that's, in fact, the main reason why I wrote this book, because the thing that I was really concerned with was that as children were growing up, as we were socializing them, instead of telling them about good positive values like prudence or courage or loyalty or duty, we basically uh, teach them psychological uh, tricks about how to avoid dealing with your fears. Such as how? How does this translate, for example, when it comes to our treatment of children? For example, if you look at the way that children are uh, educated, uh, especially in schools, but also by parents, we tell them that they need constant validations. We're not allowed to criticize them. Just a couple of days ago, for example, we were told uh, on Radio 4 that we must stop isolating children in schools when they misbehave because it will traumatize them. It would be bad for their emotional health. And virtually every form of discipline that was used in the past now comes with a health warning. And therefore, instead of questioning or criticizing them, uh, what we tend to do is we basically give them smiley faces. We tell them that they have to raise their self-esteem. We kind of create an environment where they never have to deal with the distresses and the problems of everyday life. And therefore, they become very one-sidedly uh, nervous and anxious about engaging with uncertainty. And I think that's the reason why you have uh, a, a young generations of uh, people in their 20s who find it very difficult to deal with what I call existential problems. Because these days, what we call existential problems, which is the problems of everyday life, are increasingly seen as medical ones. Stress all of a sudden becomes uh, a a huge problem. When I was young, stress was a buzz, seen as being an essential ingredient for creating something, for making something happen. Now stress is seen as as a marker for some kind of medical disease. 
you know, if you and I go to a party these days and we're a little bit shy and we're looking at our shoelaces, we don't know how to mix, we're diagnosed as having social phobia. So every problem, personal problem that you and I can possibly have or imagine is not diagnosed by some kind of medical expert. And when we do that, then what we do is we shield ourselves from human experience. We shield ourselves from each other and become less and less able to deal with the difficulties that will inev inevitably face us in our lives. So we're basically pathologizing ordinary human experience? We are. We, it's almost as, as if uh, we think that we should be spared the burden of having to deal with challenges. Mm. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, the way we use the word challenges these days is by trivializing it. So if you ever listen to uh, some professional person or a public sector advocate, they talk about this is a very challenging experience. And what they really mean by it is that it's a little bit difficult. <laughs> right? So we don't, we, don't use, we, don't, we don't speak in a plain English in, in the language of everyday life. We've got these euphemisms that we use. Uh, I think one of the most uh, troublesome features of, of, of British public life are these use of euphemisms that avoid being clear. So we don't talk about problems. We say this is problematic whatever that means. Okay, or yeah, yeah. if you misbehave, for example, I don't say, Peter, you, you were bad. You know, I would say that was inappropriate. inappropriate. <laughs> so, I, mean, I can give you a long list of these you know, weasel <laughs> words that, that avoid you know, yeah. sort of being clear about what we're doing and saying. You mentioned challenge there. To me, it seems that that one has replaced problem. You know, so this is the main challenge we face. It it's almost has to be put into a positive framework. Exactly, because you know, there was a time when I was young when a challenge meant, you know, you know, I know, walking up the Himalaya or something, or, or running the mile under four minutes. I mean, that's what a challenge. Whereas not a challenge is crossing the street on your own, as a twelve-year-old. A challenge is, you know, sort of being able to tie your shoelaces at the age of nine. I mean, this is how we've kind of trivialized it. Uh, we're talking about domestic and educational situations there. What do you think the overall effect of this cultural affair is on? our whole psychology as a culture? I think the, uh, the, the most important dimension of, 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 of our fear culture today is we tend to uh, turn almost every, what, what I would call the theological or a philosophical or a moral problem into a medical one. And we kind of sidestep having to deal with it. So gradually we're, we're losing a language that uh, makes it very, very clear about what is right and what is wrong. So, for example, one of the biggest casualties of this kind of culture that I'm describing is the act of judgment. Mm. I mean, there used to be a time uh, when in Christianity, in Judaism, in, in the Enlightenment, secular philosophies, judgment was seen as a medium through which we make sense of the world. Through judgment, we come closer to each other because I judge you and you judge me. And through judging each other, we create a public world where we're having yeah. conversations and dialogues. These days, uh, the virtue in our world is no longer judgment. That's seen as being really bad. And we have a new word for it called judgmentalism mm -hmm. or judgy, which I love. That's a real judgy. American, That's judgy. a new one. That's <laughs> a big American word. You, oh, dad, you're being so judgy, <laughs> right? Uh, and what we have is a situation where the virtue is non-judgmentalism. Mm. So we teach children in schools that it's important to be non-judgmental. And very often you will find uh, celebrities on television saying, you know, we don't have to be judgmental. I'm non-judgmental, as if somehow 
that's a signature of, 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 of saintlyhood. But actually, judging each other, being judgmental, is the essential uh, element of human communication. If I don't judge you, then I, what I'm really saying is, Peter, I don't take you seriously. I don't particularly care what you think. That's what non-judging means. Uh, judging means that I'm, I'm looking into you and, and making, uh, making kind of conclusions about whether you're right or wrong or good or bad. But it's also phony, isn't it? Because people are all the time making judgments. Absolutely. But well, this, is, this is exactly the case, yes. Because uh, I don't know anybody you know, who's genuinely non-judgmental. You, you've got to be a complete airhead not to judge people. And in fact, we find that the same people who in one breath say, I'm non-judgmental, at the same time will call you a Brexiteer because you're a Brexiteer. You must be xenophobic. Uh, and because you're xenophobic, you must be a lower moral human being than I am. And you'll find that they're very, very kind of casual and promiscuous with judging people that they don't even know, just because they assume that if you vote uh, on this particular issue in this way, that it must follow, that all these horrible uh, sort of uh, associations will kick in. Do you think this is something that is really, uh, really a thing of the West? I mean, I don't see these trends necessarily in other parts of the world? Well, the, the, there's a problem, and the problem is, is that um, America, for all its sins, uh, for all its weaknesses, the fact that it's not keeping up with China, is nevertheless still the dominant uh, sort of the hegemonic power in terms of soft power. And I think that the influence of Netflix, the influence of uh, MTV, the influence of popular culture, Hollywood, all these things, percolate throughout the world. And I know, for example, uh, I spend a lot of time in East Europe, and most East Europeans, uh, except for a very small no minority of, uh, of, of people, are not influenced by this kind of approach. But then you can sense that gradually, you know, as young people hear these songs, where they, where they hear that being judg judgmental is, is horrible, it's a sin, where they begin to watch Netflix, where everybody you know, sort of uh, adopts this form of thought, uh, those things do begin to influence. And I noticed I was very recently uh, in, in, in Asia, and even in, amongst the Asian middle class, you know, you kind of get this kind of, what I, what I see as the imitating of this kind of behavior, because it's seen as the virtuous way of being. I mean, just imagine you watch the BAFTA Awards. Just imagine you watch the Oscars. What are you going to hear? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all you're going to hear is people talking about those judgy people or uh, mm -hmm. those people talking about, you know, sort of people who are, you know, who are inappropriate. And, and it's very easy then to kind of internalize this kind of stuff. The irony, of course, of that is that they are doing it at ceremonies which are built on the whole idea of saying this is the best and this Absolutely. is not. You Absolutely, know. yes. Um, you're actually from Hungary, aren't you? Yeah. You're yeah. from Bud Budapest. And you're, but you're saying you're seeing this seeping into the culture of Eastern... Yes, Central I'm, Europe. I mean, the way I, I see it is that, and, and, uh, is that amongst the younger generations, you know, who are digitally savvy, who are always on the internet, who listen to the latest music, you know, who watch the films, this influence inevitably has an impact. Mm. Because even though they might see themselves as Hungarian, they're proud to be Hungarian or Polish or, or Czech, mm. nevertheless, there is this overwhelming influence uh, that's quite global. And we, ha we feel that in, in England, in France, and everywhere else. I mean, if the French cannot resist it and they're continually complaining about the influence of uh, American music, the East European societies uh, who have 
far less economic uh, resources to deal with these things or less able to do it. And if I, one of the things that I've been doing very recently is I've been doing some lectures around Europe, both in East and the West. And what I've been doing is talking to the younger generations, mainly between kids between 16 and 19, because uh, they're still idealistic at that point. They haven't become cynical and they haven't been too uh, conformist uh, to this mm. kind of new ethos and trying to appeal to their natural risk-taking uh, impulses, their desire for being idealistic, uh, their desire to know what is right and what is wrong, and, and trying to um, encourage them to have the courage of their conviction rather than just simply to conform what is the dominant uh, cultural ethos of our time. And also, presumably, to, to uh, help them understand that there are such things as good risks to take as opposed to the every risk being essentially fraught with danger. Absolutely. I mean, I always remember my dad, you know, at the age of nine, explaining to me that there are good risks and there are bad risks. And that's, I grew up on that. Uh, and sometimes I heard about, you know, we don't know. It might be good or it might be bad. Well, these days, to talk about a good risk is to court the accusation of being irresponsible. Because a risk is, by definition, irresponsible. It, it's got negative connotations to it. And I think that kind of sense of, uh, it's a very kind of defensive you know, sense of, of uh, not believing in your human potential yes. yeah. uh, is something that we, we need to be really worried about because that uh, kicks in at the economic level, the political, the cultural level all the time. And we've become these people who are almost closing in on ourselves. And instead of being open to new experiences, we kind of find 101 excuses as to why not now, you know, why not me, and why not in this situation, which seems to be the uh, main kind of uh, ethos that is being uh, taught in schools and in universities. I did sociology at least for A-level, uh, and I remember uh, reading a lot and being taught a lot about moral panics. Yeah. Uh, how is the kind of current cult of fear different to good old-fashioned moral panic? Well, I've been arguing that um, moral panics only do occur, and there are many examples, but they only occur when there is a, a consensus about what is, what is moral. Mm. Right. So I remember when I moved to England, you know, there was a very clear understanding that this is good and this is bad, and there was no big debates about it. The question was whether you could live up to the good or not. And, and young people would know that this is, these are the values that they had to live by. They might not like them, but they knew that sooner or later they would have to uh, uh, match up to them in some shape or form. Now, I think in our world today, there's a total absence of moral consensus. In other words, you know, if you go down the street and ask people questions about what is right and what is wrong, what are the values that you live by, it's an alien language now. Because uh, in our world, uh, we don't teach children uh, about what is good and what is bad. We teach them to, to, to have emotional skills. We teach them relations. It's all about skills, relationship skills. You know, we teach them to negotiate. We use that kind of word, negotiate you know, uh, difficult problems. But we don't tell them that you know, in our world, this is virtuous and this is not virtuous. In fact, the word, the word virtue doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Uh, so under those circumstances, when there's no moral consensus uh, to panic about, which is what it presupposed that you know, there was a certain moral consensus that had to be defended, that's why there was a panic. 
If that doesn't really exist, and if there are different moral spheres, yeah, pretty much ghettoized in our society, then the panics that do occur, or the overreactions that do occur, have a distinctly non-moral character. And what's happened more and more is that what we used to call moral panics have become increasingly medicalized. They become medical problems. I mean, every time I open a newspaper, we talk, we, have, we hear about the, st the stress in offices. You know, people are n not able to work because they've been harassed and they've been traumatized by it. And it's always a medical language we use rather than a moral language. Where do you think the, the current, I would say it's a form of panic, uh, f fear over environmentalism, do you, do you think, would you characterize that as being part of the cult of fear at the moment? This kind of sense of impending doom, you know, how much time have we got? Yes, I mean, I, I think there is a, there's a, a fundamental element in our culture of fear, which is that we're, we're detached from the future. We, we regard the future as an alien, destructive territory. And it's very rare these days to read a novel or see a film where the future is portrayed in a positive way. Almost never. Well, exactly, almost and never, in fact. Uh, and what you have instead is a very dystopic view of what the future is like. And I think what we've done with the environment is we projected our own personal and communal insecurities into the en environment. We kind of naturalized them. Mm. And, and once you do that, it, you know, and, and once, the, once the issues to do with the environment become uh, pollution, global warming, which are all of them are invisible in the first instance, uh, because you cannot see global warming. Even when they try to show it on TV, they have to speed up the cameras. Mm -hmm. You cannot see pollution. You can see the effects of pollution. Once you have this invisible threat existing on a global scale, then it becomes an unbounded fear. There is no end to it. I mean, you can project any, any uh, fantasy onto that. And that's why we find that you have people uh, almost talking like religious nutters from the Middle Ages, talking about extinction next year or the year after, and really believing that. I mean, they really do believe, just like those young children that went on the children's crusade uh, in, the, in the early Middle Ages, that unless you, unless you do something now, you know, this is the end of the world. Uh, where does that leave us with uh, Greta Thunberg? I think I, you recently described her as being uh, symptomatic of a, of a societal crisis, actually. I mean, is that what? Because we're listening to young people, what? Well, I mean, I, I listen to everybody, but I think there's something very sad when the adult world hides behind children mm. and we kind of put the children in the front line and, in, in a sense, uh, kind of cultivate it. It, 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 kind of, it. it really does remind me of, of the old children's crusade when, when people hid behind, you know, nine, ten-year-olds as a way of promoting their cause because they didn't have the courage of their own conviction. And uh, so I think that's a problem. The other problem, of course, which uh, is more fundamental in the long run, is that the adult world, particularly in the Anglo-American sphere, has given up on its authority. Given up on its authority. Yeah, it doesn't believe that it's right to di give that uh, direction to children. It no longer gives leadership or inspires them. And we are in the middle of a process that I, I, I call in my own other writings, socialization in reverse, which basically means that we're getting the children to tell us how to behave rather than the other way around. So, you know, when I was young, when you were young, presumably parents guarded you and told you what is right and wrong, how to behave. Mm. Now parents look to their children very often. Mm. So you have English mums 
going into a, a, a shop and it's their daughter tells them what to wear rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of socialization in reverse, the giving up of adult authority, is a, to me represents a real cultural regression where essentially you, you give up on your role as a responsible adult to take responsibility for the future generations. Maybe even down some of that to the kind of cult of youth, i.e. that youth has inherent wisdom that once we used to attribute to older people by, by its very nature, age. That's right, yeah. I, I, it is very, very interesting that uh, the idea that old people have something to teach us yeah. is not seen as a joke, you know, <laughs> sort of. And uh, I've written about how professionals, experts, write about, tell parents, mm. not to allow the grandparents to tell the children how to, you know, how to behave or allow children to spend too much time with the grandparents because their child reading techniques is very outdated and is likely to make them you know, sort of the worst. So uh, in Finland, they did this study which basically proved that children become obese when they spend too much time with their grandparents because apparently grandmas just shoves you know, sweets down their throats. I know mine did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so did mine. And, you know, I'm, I'm still here. So <laughs> <I say. laughs> um, Frank, a lot of your positions and a lot of the themes that you take up and, and explain um, to people, these would find favour. You mentioned earlier that these are not a left-right thing, but many of them would find favour on a tr quite a traditional conservative um, uh, side of an argument. Um, but I, I wonder where you are politically now. I mean, you quite famously founded the Revolutionary Communist Party in the 1970s. That's the late 70s, yeah. That's right. And, and I was at Kent in the early <laughs> 80s, and the RCP was a real force, actually, on, on campus. I wonder, I mean, are you still a Marxist? Uh, I, I find it very difficult to describe what, what I am. I can only tell you if you give me a bit of time to uh, show, kind of indicate how I've come to where I've been. Mm -hmm. I, I think that what has happened with me is that I had certain experiences uh, in my life which had a profound effect on my outlook. Um, one, one such experience was, you know, it, it sounds very trivial, but it was the late 70s, I even when the RCP was in existence. Um, I remember uh, students at the university and elsewhere adopted this policy of no platform. And I remember um, saying to myself, well, if we believe in democracy, if we have confidence in our arguments, why do you want to deny the National Front or any other organization the right to argue and debate with you? And I actually wrote a little pamphlet on that. And I got into a lot of trouble because everybody on the left was saying that Furedi is appeasing the fascists mm. by being prepared to argue with them. And that's at that point, I realized that, you know, whatever I was, I wasn't like them. I wasn't like the left was. The second experience I had, which completely shook me up, I mean, had a really big impact on me, was when, I don't know if you recall in the 80s, you had these major uh, uh, trials occurring about child abuse up mm. north. Mm. And many of them uh, you know, were entirely based upon false accusations. Mm. And I remember talking to somebody who was actually quite close to me on the left. And he was saying, you know, Frankie, what you don't realize is that in England, one out of four working class men is a child abuser. And when he said that, I knew that either he was an idiot or I was an idiot, because in, in my mind, that couldn't take place. But 
then I re then I began to realize a lot of people b began to believe this that uh, that uh, child abuse was so rife and every man was a potential child abuser. That really did shake me up because if people had such a debased view of humanity mm. on the left, then you know what was their politics like? And then the last thing that happened to me, which had a big impact, was the miners' strike, mm. where we supported the miners' strike totally, but we argued that if if there was going to be a strike, there had to be a ballot. I don't know if you remember the big debate about it. The, the miners uh, in Nottingham, uh, for example, said that we're not going to go on strike unless we have a ballot. Mm. And the argument was that there's no time for a ballot, and you know, uh, there's no point in doing that. And I felt that from a basic democratic point of view, mm. if you are going to have a, a serious action like that, you do need to you know, sort of uh, have democratic forms of decision making. And I think that, that was the final thing that kind of pushed me in a different direction. Um, so my politics, I would say, uh, is, very, is, is, a, is a mixture of three different things. Mm. When it comes to family values, when it comes to personal relationships, when it comes to things like community, loyalties, things of that sort, I think I'm fairly conservative. I, you know, I would see, see myself as a, as a conservative with a small c. I think those are particularly important uh, in the, uh, now when they are so much, uh, they're, they're, they're so much being isolated and mm -hmm. ghettoized. And I think it's quite important to stand up for those sensibilities. When it comes to free speech, freedom, uh, any kind of form of free expression, I would say I'm libertarian, you know, li totally liberal. I think that Anything should, you know, anybody should be able to express what, whatever they want as long as they're prepared to live with the consequences. So I'm totally, you know, sort of uh, committed to uh, a kind of a cer certain sense of freedom. And when it comes to economics, I change my mind uh, on a regular basis between, you know, between understanding the importance of the free market whilst at the same time recognizing that it's very important that people have a, a safety net you know, that uh, in a civilized society, we do provide people with benefits, such as education and health. Uh, the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm really against in, in the world, I'm not against welfare as such. Mm. What I am against is the way that welfare ha is used to make people dependent on welfare and the way in which welfare has become a medium of political control rather than using it selectively for the right people. So it's a, a mixture of three different things that mm. often mm. seem to conflict, but in my mind, they correspond to my experiences. So that's how I would describe myself. So it was nothing, for example, to do with the, the fall of the Eastern Bloc, no. nothing like I that? I always knew they would fall. In fact, that was one of the mm. arguments. I, I, you know, because I'm Hungarian, mm. I never had the slightest mm. positive association with, with, with Soviet Union or China or East Europe. And I, and I could tell that it would fall, and people would, would argue with me, saying that you're crazy. How could the this formidable Soviet Union and the, this formidable Eastern Bloc just fall? I said, look, talk to people in Poland, Hungary, Russia. Yes, you'll find that nobody believes in the system at all. So that had nothing to do with it. It had to do with things within Britain itself, and in particular with our experiences. And the and the good thing was that everybody I was involved with in politics on the left, in the RCP more or less drew a similar conclusion. We had a lot of arguments and discussions about it. This would have been in the 90s, maybe this happened? Yeah, the 90s. And we basically said, it'd be far better that we all, you know, f you know end, end, end our 
party life and go off as individuals and, and learn from our experiences and make our own way. And, you know, and that's what we did, and, you know, sort of, uh, which I think worked quite well because it meant that people uh, had to live with the consequences of their action. They had to take responsibility for what they were doing, and they were, and they were able to use their old experience in a positive way. So I'm very proud of what I did in the 70s mm -hmm. because they gave me a, a vantage point from which to see both the right and the left. You're actually writing a book, or in fact, you've written a book, haven't you? One's coming out in a few months' time, which is about borders, isn't it? The need for borders. Now, that would seem to be entirely opposite to an RCP position, which would have been borderless yeah. internationalism, wouldn't it? So, so basically, we, we, we live in a world where every single boundary that gave meaning to life is being called into question, not just national borders. So, uh, if you look around, people are saying that the boundary between men and women is unnatural. I mean, who invented this? There are millions of genders. There's no point in simply uh, sticking with the old school idea that there are men and women, uh, only two sexes. That boundary's gotta go. The boundary between adults and children is being increasingly called into question. And you have a situation where people no longer know when a child becomes an adult. It's no longer 18, is it 24, 30, 31? Total lack of clarity about it. The boundary between um, animals and human beings, which was fairly clear in the past, there's a lot of books being written about the fact that that's quite artificial. And there's no reason why we might not change our minds about this boundary. Very importantly, the boundary between the private and the public sphere, something I feel very strongly about is being eroded and people say we don't like the private sphere it's a place where you have domestic abuse we talk about the dark side of the family <coughs> so all in all what what happens is that this important boundary between the private and the public is being called into question so in the book what i try to do is to explain why this is happening and why we need to resist it why culturally it's important that we deal with this problem you could say this is all about the infantilization of society, isn't it, really? I mean, just sort of like simply trying to turn things on the head just almost for the sake of it. I mean, surely, saying oh, animals, humans, there's no difference, whatever. I think it's, it's that, but it's also more profound. I think we've, we've kind of lost the meaning of life. Mm. And we are very scared of dealing with the language of meaning. It's seen as being too moral. And it's also interesting that the very word moral now has got negative con you know, connotations. So when somebody talks about virtues or talks about good and evil, they're described as being moralistic. And morality itself is often seen as something people hide behind uh, as a way of uh, obscuring their real intent. So when morality itself has got this very negative, minimalist connotations, then under those circumstances, people you know, just lose their way and fall upon themselves and uh, begin to react against everything uh, that gave meaning to experience in the past. And to me, you know, this is something, again, that transcends left and right. Yes. Because it was a conservative government, for example, in, in Britain, that institutionalized trans culture. I mean, they very casually decided that to insist upon the fact that they're only men and only women is somehow cultural sin. These are conservatives. They, they, these weren't mm -hmm. 
mm. you know, radical mm. feminist or radicals of any sort. So you can see that uh, all sections of the political spectrum, to some extent, have lost their own moral clarity, and their own moral sensibility is, is, is conspicuous by its weakness. And you can count on, a, on, a, on your hand the number of, of intellectuals or the number of public uh, figures who are able to speak convincingly in a language of, of, of moral norms. We've just had a good example of that, I think, in the two judgments, you probably know. One where it was judged that a woman could not say at work that there is such a thing as two, two sexes, a man and a woman. That that was absolutist. This is what the judge said, absolutist. So she, she was fired, and so she, she lost that. But at the same time, we've got the legal system saying that veganism should be treated in the same way as a belief system, a religion. This is yeah. serious moral confusion and chaos, isn't it? It, it is, and I, and I think it speaks to the fact that um, these moral confusions that you describe are legitimated by a judicial system where the members of the judiciary themselves have more or less been educated into, into the values uh, that open the gates to anything that, that challenges tradition. Mm. You know, in, in English language, we talk about judicial independence. And I'm a big fan of judicial independence. But what we often forget is, you know, who are the people who are, you know, working in the courts? And these are people that went to, uh, they're legal scholars, they're lawyers, mm -hmm. who've been educated in different universities. And the ideas that they picked up in the universities, invariably, without exception, uh, inspired them and, and drive them towards conclusions which, in a sense, is consistent with the zeitgeist of our time. So it's not surprising, and I, and I actually wrote an article predicting this, that in today's courts, a judge would rule veganism to be a religion, you know, having the same authority as Judaism or Christianity or, or Hinduism. Right? Uh, I mean, that kind of outlook is now what you would expect from people. And it's not that they even think twice about it. They, they think that they are being you know, sort of extremely, you know, sort of uh, consi considered in making these judgments. At the same time, the same judges, you know, will uh, slap somebody down mm. who says that, uh, you know, I think that, you know, biologically speaking, there are two sexes. Mm. We've been thinking that for thousands of years. You know, why can't I be allowed to say that in the 21st century? You get slapped down for that. Well, what is the book called, actually, the, the new book? The new book is, new book is called um, Why Borders Matter mm. and Why Humanity Has to Relearn the Art of Drawing Boundaries. Right. Well, that's a, a labor of love, yes. A labor yeah. of love. Yeah. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. It's fascinating. Thank you very much, Frank. Uh, that's it for so what you're saying is this week. Um, do join us again next time. In the meantime, as a present to yourself for the new year, please do subscribe, won't you? Thank you very much. Bye.